Welcome to the Institute of Directors series of podcasts on the Shinquin Commission, the future of inclusive business, harnessing diverse talent for success. The Commission is examining the key barriers to the recruitment, retention and progression of individuals from underrepresented groups, with specific reference to disability, ethnicity, gender and sexual orientation. This series will discuss important themes that the Commission focuses on and aims to provide examples and guidance on the importance of diversity in the workplace. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Shinkwin Commission podcast series. This episode will focus on creating equitable and inclusive workplaces for women. I'm Alex Hall-Chen, Senior Policy Advisor for Equity, Diversity and Inclusion at the IOD. I'm pleased to be joined by both Esther Teakin, COO and Board Member of the IOD, and Dr Zara Nanu, who is Chief Executive of Gap Square, as well as a Commissioner on the Shinkwin Commission. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Thank you. I'd like to start with a question on data. So how do you think companies can use data intelligently to tackle gender inequality in the workplace? Zara, can I come to you first? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a really interesting question and has been at the forefront driving diversity and inclusion uh, around the world in recent years. And the reason is diversity and inclusion can sometimes be very emotive. It can be very emotional. It can be very political. Um, and data has been one of those key things that has helped move the conversation more into action and put specific managing points around the conversation. So you can actually, you you pretty much see that emotional and the political be eliminated from conversations. There is less of those, is this a myth? Is the gender pay gap a myth? Is, uh, Is it fair to set targets? Is someone being promoted just because of their gender or because of their ethnicity or because of their disability? Uh, So data is really putting the issue at the forefront, you start looking at the facts and managers start understanding how data can help them shape specific action points going forward. So if from my point of view, having seen this agenda develop around the world, data has definitely reshaped it and accelerated a lot of the conversations and and made them more tangible, measurable and real. Great, thank you. Esther, can I come to you now? Yes, and and I I agree uh, um, with Sarah. I think specifically also data helps uh, people understanding the issues better. We need to communicate the the data that we collect and uh, for a lot of employees on the workforce already, but also I I would say, you know, externally and in, in the media we have such a wide range of social media and communications ways is let's share the data that that we get. So that because a lot of people, I think, are still under the impression that, oh, it's not that bad or we don't have a specific gap. But only when you show them the reality, which you can show them with data, they realize, oh, I wasn't aware of that. Yes, of course, we need to do something. And I think data does help um, specifically proving that, unfortunately, we're not there yet where we should be. And we need to have a proper representation of the society on all levels, including pay and and other diversity levels. Absolutely. And we've, of course, had gender pay gap reporting for companies over 250 employees in the UK since 2017. And since then, we have seen some encouraging progress in, in narrowing the gender pay gap. But in addition to transparency over pay gap data, 
what role do you think transparency over businesses' action plans uh, to, to narrow that, that gap further can play? Uh, well, let, let me, if you don't mind, let me uh, first answer on that. I think it can help a lot in the attraction uh, for those employers, because if you also be open and transparent on your action plan, you're willing to admit that you're not where you're should be, supposed to be yet, uh, but these ones are the actions you take. I think that you become more attractive as an employer and you're also uh, become more uh, attractive for your own employees because you know where you stand uh, and what, what you're planning to do. And I think that's all what people are looking for these days. Is that, okay, it's fine if you admit that you have it, but what are you going to do about it? Because only reporting, so what? That doesn't give us anything steps further. You need to actually show that you make some progression and you can only show that by sharing your actions and your next steps. And I think, you know, that transparency, again, will help a lot of people understanding uh, we're looking for a role or we want to progress in a role where, as an employer, you stand. Brilliant. Thank you. Zara, is there anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more, Esther. And I think the, there's it's a kind of two-sided coins with the legislation. I actually can't believe it's been five years since we've had it in place because I remember vividly the first day it came into effect. Um, the the I think over the years, because of that kind of availability of data around pay gaps, we got a little bit complacent. Those numbers just started coming at us fast and thick and and they stopped meaning anything. It was like, oh, yeah, the gender pay gap in that organization is 30%. Well, it's been 30% last year, so no big deal. Up until, I think, this year, when someone created the gender pay gap bot on Twitter, and it was like a brilliant idea where for International Women's Day, any organization that was tweeting anything about International Women's Day, that automated bot would retweet their tweet and say what the gender pay gap in the organization is by utilizing the gender pay gap reporting portal online. And that has really put, reignited the fire around the legislation and actually brought meaning to it again. Um, As with many things that we tend to see in the media, many bad things we tend to see in the media, we, we tend to get desensitized and we really needed this bot this year to bring more awareness to these numbers and and help them come to life. And I think transparency is coming from the drive for for regulation and legislation around transparency, and that's happening in the UK. It's happening in the US on a state-by-state level. It's happening across Europe with new directives coming in. So the agenda is picking up. Governments are looking at putting in more transparency around pay equity. But at the same time, availability of platforms like Glassdoor like built it like blind is providing platforms for your employees to share pay data online in real time like live so as they get new offers as they get promotions as they get salary increases as they get transferred to a different job you see more and more people being transparent online and public about how much they earn and what their offers are we see companies in states like Colorado in the US where they're required to be even more transparent around pay so I've seen a, a tech startup, a, lar- a large company actually, um, in Denver, who publishes all of their list of employees with their pay next to it. So all the roles and pay is transparent and open and out there. So this availability of information is making pay very transparent for employees. And employers really need to catch up quickly with this agenda. Esther, for those very same reasons, you want to stay on top of hiring top talent, attracting top talent, making the most of your workforce so that you can 
grow a successful organization. Absolutely. And Zara, you mentioned some of the legislation and regulation that's happening elsewhere in the world. Now, the EU, of course, has recently announced uh, new board diversity regulations that require boards to appoint at least 40% of non-executive roles or 33% of all director roles um, to be women by June 2026. What's your perspective on um, such quotas in terms of how effective they're likely to be in driving change? I, I think, I mean, we we it depends on how, how you look at this. And of course, it's a controversial issue and there's different ways to look at this. But what we're seeing at Gap Square, and we work with organizations around the world around issues of pay equity, is increasingly more and more organizations want to set their own targets. They don't want to just go blindly around the pay gap and around numbers and just report year to year. Because the Government Equalities Office, for instance, requires companies to publish an action plan alongside their numbers around pay gaps, those action plans are like likely to include things like some kind of objective, some, some kind of targets that the organization aims towards, because setting those data points in time, be it in 2025 or 2030, really allows organizations to focus their numbers so that when they look at their growth plans, that they look at how they want to grow their teams, how they want to grow their board, they can really do it with those target targets in place. And we see increasingly more and more organizations resort to that, even without directives or legislations requiring them to do that. Uh, so it's a, it's it's it will be interesting to see how that develops. California had a similar legislation they've introduced maybe three or four years ago, where boards of publicly listed companies in the state of California had to have at least two um, people that were um, either they had to be either women or ethnic minority representatives, and that legislation has been struck down a few months ago as unconstitutional. So there's they don't have that in place anymore. It would be interesting to understand how that has changed boards throughout the state of California over those few years that the legislation was in place. Brilliant, thank you, Esther. Is there anything you'd add to that? Yeah, no, that would definitely be interesting because you know we've seen it. Is that I'm in general not for quotas, but at the same time, we also need to be realistic. If you don't set any quotas, then there is no goal that people can work towards. And then, you know, and a lot of, like you said, Sarah, we need to help companies. And and the government can help companies by setting those goals, by setting those quotas so, so they start thinking about it. Of course, you don't want them to focus only on on women as as new hires because you need to to have the right set you need to have the right level of inclusion and diversity but some of the companies just need to be reminded of it and if they know that they can work towards a quota they can help changing their recruitment drive they can you know make it more wider which group of of specific um, different genders do they not touch enough yet and why not? And can they take that into account in their advertising, in in the way how they recruit, in the way how they approach it, but also for their own people? Do they walk the talk themselves from a company inside uh, and show that externally? And if not, they, they can also adjust that. So, you know, I think, unfortunately, we are now where we are, that we need quotas. And that we need to have that extra push. So it will be interesting to see what comes out of the the, the Californian uh, uh, reason why they stopped with it. Uh, because if it hasn't helped, what will help then there? But if you you know you also know that the reality is if you don't put any quotas, people only talk about it short term 
and then people go back to their own comfort zone and hire the people that are more or less the same like them. And then you don't have this substantial disruption in the market. And we need to have the disruption. We need to have the right fit for the right roles, but it needs to be a more diverse fit. Great. Thank you. And Esther, when it comes to recruitment more broadly, what steps do you think that sectors which are traditionally male-dominated can take to attract more women into their profession? Um, I think specifically they have to take it into account of the way how they advertise their roles, but also what they offer as benefits. Um, you know, I attended a, a hackathon uh, in the last few years, and that was specifically focused on women in tech. And, you know, all around the world, uh, virtually, you had to sign up. And in international teams, they worked towards a, um, a, a solution in, in two weeks to present uh, to a board. And yes, it was only focused on women and, and, and uh, not on, on men. But at the same time, it worked really well because it actually highlighted that the technology sector was sometimes being represented so wrongly of what it was. And in reality, that analysis of data and the use of data, well, you know, is, is such a big market, which everybody can do easier if you're now working from home. Of course, you need to have your qualifications for it and your understanding of it. But that never kind of came alight. And I think through those kind of events, you can get it more alight. You can also then, if you change uh, the way of how you approach it, you, you can make it in a way more available. So I've, I've seen many companies who adjusted their benefits of maybe having summer hours or, you know, different flexibility. You can start early and therefore you can also leave early. And with the summer hours, you can more econom- accommodate the childcare around the holiday camps during holidays and about the clubs. And I think that's what we, we need to be realistic about. And that's what we need to implement because, in the majority, unfortunately, still, it is the female who is the one who takes on the household at home and manages all the, the you know, logistic arrangements and the practicality during holidays, during sickness of the child. So how can you jump in on that as an employer when you have a male-dominated uh, industry? Is I think would be really uh, good to see how they take that into account with what they can offer female employees. Brilliant. Thank you. Zara, is there anything you'd add to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I just remembered, I think it was the CEO of Harvard University at one point who said behind every successful woman, there's a man doing the dishes. So yeah. uh, there's there's absolutely that point that needs to be brought into conversation. My, my answer to, to this recruitment question is actually going to be twofold. I think if you look at it now, at this point in time, uh, bringing more women in tech might not necessarily mean you're bringing them into high paying roles, the AI roles, the data science roles, because there aren't that many women around who would have the the right skills and qualifications. So they would have to come into entry-level roles and in effect, as in, in, in the immediate effect, would cause the gap to widen. So I think it's important that we acknowledge that, we recognize that, and we give companies the space to widen the gap in the initial days of getting more women into uh, science, technology, engineering, and maths in order to, in time, in a few years' time, start driving that gap significantly down. There's very little room around that. It's the only way we can we can overcome that challenge right now. 
And now I'm going to talk a little bit about the future too, because we looked at a World Economic Forum report on the future of jobs that they produced in 2020, and they had a list of 20 jobs that are on the decline and 20 jobs that are on the increase until 2025. So it's a five-year span. This is the 20 jobs that are coming up. These are the 20 jobs that are on the decline and will eventually stop existing in our economies. And the jobs on the increase are technical jobs. They're all data science, artificial intelligence, robotics, Internet of Things, um, data security. All of, all of them are very technical jobs. If you look at data from the Office for National Statistics, all of them are currently male-dominated. So we're looking in the next five years at having an economy that is predominantly growing based on very male-driven occupations. If you look at the roles on the decrease, they're very much female-dominated. You have roles in retail, you have administrative assistants, accountants, a lot of kind of data recording type of roles that are really on the decrease uh, because there's so much happening in the space of automation that is automating many of those roles. So if you look at roles like, for instance, a legal clerk, they the, those roles are, uh, the law firms are investing and startups are investing in identifying ways to automate those kind of roles. And they are very much female dominated. So when we look at recruitment, we really need to double down on our efforts in the space of technology, engineering, and maths. Because if we continue to go at the rate we're going right now, and if you look at the numbers of women graduating from science, technology, engineering, and maths degrees, they are growing by about 1% a year. And we're still staying in the mid-20% of how many graduates are women in this in these occupations. So we really need to do something drastic. We can't continue to do what we've been doing and hope that by 2025, we're going to have equality in this space. In fact, we're looking at having gaps that are significantly higher than they are right now. Brilliant. Thank you. Now, there's also been a lot of discussion around the impact of the pandemic on working women, from the unequal distribution of childcare to the growth of hybrid working. I'd be really interested in your perspectives on what the lasting impacts of the pandemic will be for gender equality in the workplace. Esther, can I come to you first? Yeah, um, it, it's it's interesting because what we also seen is during the pandemic is that there are many more um, entrepreneurs and small business have been set up, uh, many much more uh, creativity, and and a higher level of smaller business activities uh, started up, which has been a really a good way. The challenge what comes out of that one is when it's still being the the female entrepreneur, she has not been offered the same uh, financial support uh, and various other aspects to keep on running the business and to expanding since uh, COVID has stopped compared with male entrepreneurs. And I, and I know that the government is working on various initiatives regarding, regarding uh, female entrepreneurship, but I think to not have it all the work and all the companies that have been set up, uh, you know, not pursuing and growing as they should be, there needs to be something done about the funding and the business support that, that female entrepreneurs uh, should get. Um, I think, you know, because of the pandemic, there has been a slighter positive change in, in gender equity because I think uh, more women were able to start their own businesses compared with before. 
And I think also for a lot of uh, male characters, but even in, you know, same sex families and, uh, and other aspects, they probably realized, um, you know, what, what it is to, uh, uh, to deal with the challenges of all being home or working from home or managing homeschooling or care uh, or, or other aspects. And, and I think that has opened maybe the eyes of a lot of more people. I'm not saying that it's, it got that much better. I would say now we're coming out. I think it's still, you know, who's going back to the office and who's not and who's commuting or who's arranging the pickups and, and the drop-offs or the arrangements regarding caring for pets, for elderly family members, etc. And I, so therefore, I think we need to be careful that now the pandemic has gone down to a more, you know, back to the new normal way that we're not forgetting that all the in, the initiatives and the jobs that have been created for female uh, employees, but also the companies that have been set up, that that's going downwards too. Absolutely. Yeah. Sarah, what's your take? I mean, absolutely a, a big impact during the, the kind of the height of the pandemic. I think it's important to for us to also talk about the, the workers who are not desk-based workers, who weren't able yeah. to work from home, but at the same time, the women had to care for their children while also working, uh, and how a lot of the women were actually on the front lines, in, in nurses, in shop workers, and keeping us going through those times at what is very low-paid jobs, if you look at examining the value that the current economic system assigns to those roles. And yet they are the roles that kept us going for a couple of good years. Um, and in addition to that, I think another way another way to analyze the impact on women of the pandemic is to look at the great resignation that has started to happen after um, as people are starting to go back to work. And I was looking at a report that Gardner has produced, for instance, around people leaving um, the tech space. Why are people leaving the tech space? And it was really interesting to see that they're leaving not because of pay, so pay wasn't the number one reason. They're leaving to go and work for more socially minded projects and socially minded organizations. So that kind of entire reconsideration around who do I want to work for and where do I want to put my work time, considering there are a lot of things to balance outside of work, is having an impact and, and on current kind of strides for companies to attract talent some are doing better than others uh, but through that I have seen a similar trend Esther in that a lot of women are looking at freelance work yep. or independently setting up their own business kind of work because that does give them some flexibility in how they spend their time and resources many have taken a, a career kind of downgrade in order to do that so they used to be high executives and now their administrative assistants online just because that gives them that flexibility and and they can do they can manage their time on on their own brilliant thank you and so just to follow up on that a bit do you think that the shift that we've seen towards more hybrid working presents any potential challenges to gender equality in the workplace for example in the growing divide between employees according to how much time they spend in the office I think that this is definitely a valid question. We've seen at Gap Square, we, we've seen examples where you have more men going into the office these days than you have women. And a lot of the conversations around who's going to get a promotion, who's going to get the new project, who's going to get more power over a new PNL 
still happen in the office. So you have those decisions happening separately. And another thing that's really interesting for me from the point of view of equal pay is that a lot of the jobs are changing because of how we use technology and how we've had to use technology in the pandemic. Jobs are changing, but they're not changing in a very visible way because you're not in the office, you're at home. So there's significantly more risk of equal pay because some employees, some women might have taken on more responsibility than they had when they started hybrid working or more working from home. So organizations really need to consider the impact of the tasks that that their employees are performing in this new normal work from home, hybrid working, to make sure that pay is fair and equal for everyone. Thank you. And Esther, what's your take on, on this? And what do you think companies can do to prevent um, these, these new trends from affecting gender equality? No, yeah, I definitely agree with, with uh, Sarah. Is what, what you you see uh, is literally still, even if you work from home, the majority of the meetings are formal. Because you're you kind of not spontaneously keep calling people via your Zoom or via your Teams. So you start only talking to people when there's a meeting or a call scheduled. And then, of course, when you're in the office, you still have those dynamics of the, the coffee machine talk or, you know, the, the walking lunch. Uh, and, and I agree, there is the risk that there will be an imbalance then in, in promotions and pay and other negotiations, which are done easier and quicker face to face than when they are via screen. It still stays a screen. It's still not the, uh, uh, you know, it's more difficult to read the facial expressions and and to keep on going. It's easier almost to disconnect when you're on a call than when you're are face-to-face. Um, so I, I think what companies really need to take into account when they go through their quarterly or their annual uh, appraisal and performance, they also need to take into account the location and what the person specifically has performed even when they were working from home. So, you know, you need to take that into account. How many times could they connect with their line manager, with the teams? Is there a way that you can ensure that the teams come at least together one day a week or, you know, one or twice a month? So that there is this equality being seen uh, that when you are going through a, a performance process or when you are going through a review of the year, have you taken into account all the, the assumptions uh, on the same level? And have you, you know, it's in, it doesn't need to be for many jobs that you need to be physically there. But like Sarah earlier said, people were actually kept everything going. You know, the, the people at the front, the nurses, the shopkeepers, the carers, you know, have we actually thanked them extra for it? Yes, don't understand me wrong. It was nice to stand up clapping outside the house every Thursday, and we definitely appreciated it. But that actually, I'm sure the people loved that and it helped them. But in the end, it didn't help them financially in any way. And it didn't help them, you know, further progressing their career. And I think that's what really needs to be taken into account. When you review it, you have to make sure you review all aspects. And that also includes the way of working, your flexibility, the agile way uh, that, that people uh, can do while they are children, while there are other ways that they have to manage uh, and working from home or still commuting every day with the extra burdens of, of realizing that you need to take care of extra childcare because you need to, uh, you 
well, your children are at home or your, your care or your pets are at home or you can't stay at home and being at the front line. So I definitely think that employees need to take a step back and, and look at it realistically at the end of the year. Wow, what have these people done? And how can I take that into account for the review and the reward going forward? Absolutely. And I mean, we know more widely that women are underrepresented in senior leadership positions in many sectors. What do you think, Esther, are some of the practical steps that businesses can take to develop a, a pipeline of talented women into senior leadership? I think they, the steps that they can take is that we need to start uh, at the beginning of people's careers. So already at, at, at school levels, at university levels, we need to make it more clear. Like Sarah earlier said, you have a, a big amount of people coming from your, your university being from a different diversity and, and being female. At the same time, they don't follow up all the way to the top. Why not? So we're, we're losing so many in that pipeline. And we, we need to find a way not to lose too many in that pipeline. There is something that is not being attractive enough and we're not helping the women to come forward. And so I think you can't start early enough as an employer, but also as a, uh, an educational sector, as the government, is to make it really clear that there are so many jobs that are equally and so many businesses that are way more successful if there is a diverse management team level, if there's a diverse board. Why don't we push that from the day that they already get started, from the day that they get influenced by it, where which study they choose, which direction they go, which you know um, a job market there is. We we need to be louder about that, and employers need to help with that jointly with the government and the educational sector. Absolutely, Sarah. Is there anything you'd add to that? Yeah, no, I I agree fully, and I'm I'm a numbers person. So what we did a couple of years ago, because we can have access to this information, uh, the government equalities office requires all these businesses to report on their pay gaps, but they also have to report on the representation of employees in different quartiles. So you you sort your employees in four groups from the lowest paid group to the highest paid group, uh, and you then show the representation by gender. So what we did is we looked at all of the industries in the UK economy and how does that look for the representation of women in the upper quartile and not a single industry had more women in the upper quartile than men every single industry has more women uh, uh, I wish that was true every single industry has more men in the upper quartile um, and some of them are very a very female dominated industry so you have retail you have the retail sector this retail sector is very female dominated you walk into a lot of shops it's still very female dominated on the on the floor but when you look at the upper quartile a lot of the all of the organizations are male dominated so something needs to shift in terms of how we view that data and how we understand that data and actually we found interesting helping companies to understand how how is the where did the people in that upper quartile come from? Did they grow internally within the organization or did they come did they get recruited into those more senior leadership roles? And usually what they find out through data is a lot of the times those roles are recruited inwards. So then it becomes a conversation around was there someone within your internal pipeline who maybe wouldn't fit your stereotypical approach to this particular role? who could have been a good fit for this and how can you grow more such people within the organization so that they can fill those senior leadership roles going forward. Brilliant. Thank you. And 
Finally, Zara, if you could suggest just one piece of advice for an organisation who wants to create a more inclusive and equitable workplace for women, what would you suggest? I think the main thing for me would be to align the diversity and inclusion agenda to the business strategy, because what you usually have is organizations have plans for growth, plans for new markets, new products, and then the diversity and inclusion strategy just runs in parallel with this somewhere on the sidelines, on the fringe. And what needs to happen in order for businesses to be more inclusive and diverse is for that diversity and inclusion strategy to be interweaved within the growth strategy of the business. So that that would be my my key key point to make today. Brilliant. Thank you. And Esther, what would your advice be? Um, I would advise them to the information that they have, that they keep communicating that internally and externally. You can only achieve that high level of diversity if you literally walk the talk in the company yourself, from the top down and from the bottom up. And I think the more you show that and the more you share it, being open, ask your people to help on that. It should not be a tick box. It should not be a checklist. It should be that somebody or everybody within the organization is aware of it all the time because people have it in normal life too. Again, that reflection of society. They have friends from all different ethnicities and ages and um, you know backgrounds Why don't they see that on all the different levels and all the different career paths in an organization? It needs to be a reflection of the customers you serve, the communities you deal with, and your stakeholders. And therefore, please, when you do walk the talk, do it properly. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Zara and Esther, thanks so much for your time today. You're welcome. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Directors podcast. For more information on the work of the IOD, including that of the Shinquin Commission, please visit our website at iod.com.